Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, we are recording. (laughs) Are you controlling the recorder with your foot? Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Last summer, coronavirus summer, the Last Archive's dauntless producer, Ben Natapaffrey, came to visit me in Vermont. Picture woods, fields, goats, dogs, a barn cat. The state was pretty much locked down, and I couldn't let him in the house. So we sat, as Vermonters say, a cow's length apart, on the porch of a cabin in the woods. Ben had driven up in a pickup truck, loaded with all of his fancy recording equipment. But in the cabin, where there's no electricity, the conditions for recording were a little primitive. That's like, we just need corn pipes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is a, like fully regressed last archive recording. This is, this is the last archive 19th century edition. Okay, so the conditions were grim, the way so much of the conditions in the pandemic were grim. But Ben had come a long way to tell me a story. It's the trappings of a ghost story, basically. <laughs> also, we have a chicken in the yard. <laughs> Don't let the chicken in. <laughs> okay. You'll never get the chicken in. Yeah, there's a strong no chickens in the last archive rule. <laughs> this episode... Ben's going to tell you that story, the story he told me on the porch of that cabin in Vermont. A ghost story. A story I'd never heard before, but which, honestly, is like the most last archive thing ever. Should I do the thing here? Yeah, you tell the people. Imagine a place. A cabin in the backwoods of the mind, lined with cupboards, stocked with proof, cluttered with weird stuff. Magnets. A deck of cards with strange symbols. Old radios. What is telepathy? How may its forces be controlled? The sign on the door? Weirdly, even on the door of that cabin, it reads, 
The Last Archive. I'm Jill Lepore. And I'm Ben Natafafri. This podcast has been going through the last century of American history, decade by decade. This season is all about doubt. And with this story of Ben's, we've reached the 1950s. I think of the 1950s as an age of conformity and also of persecution for the non-conforming. So you've got your suburbs and your Barbie dolls and your hula hoops and your heyday of liberalism, but you've also got your redlining and your housing covenants to keep black people out of those suburbs. The 1950s was a time when it seemed somehow important to pretend that things were one way when they were really another way. That's what grabbed me about Ben's story. We think of the 1950s as a time of intellectual consensus and rigidity, when actually, well, I don't want to give it all away. Okay, Ben, take us there. Step through the door to a living room in the town of Pueblo, Colorado, 10.35 p.m., November 1952. There's a man leaning over a woman. She's lying on a couch, and he's speaking into a microphone. Now we're going to turn back. We're going to turn back through time and space. Just like turning back in the pages of a book. And when I next talk to you, you will be seven years old. And you will be able to answer my questions. That's the voice of Maury Bernstein, a 33-year-old businessman. He works in the farm and industrial equipment business. Handsome, straight-laced. He's got tight, curled black hair. Now, now you are seven years old. Are there any nice boys that you like? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm, that voice belongs to a 29-year-old housewife named Virginia Tai. She seems ordinary enough at first. That night in 1952, she could have stayed home with her husband, a local businessman, or they could have gone to a bridge game, a cocktail party, or a dance. Maybe she should have. But instead, she's here on the couch in Maury Bernstein's pitch-black living room. I want you to keep on going back and back and back in your mind. And surprising as it may seem, strange as it may seem, you will find that there are other scenes in your memory. There are other scenes from faraway lands and distant places in your memory. Bernstein's doing something called hypnotic age regression. After the World Wars, it had been used as a way of helping soldiers deal with trauma. But the woman Bernstein was age-regressing, Virginia Tai, didn't have any known trauma. And honestly, that's not what Bernstein was after. He'd read a book that said that hypnotic age-regression could help people remember past lives, as in reincarnation. Now you're going to tell me what scenes came into your mind... What did you see? Oh, I scratched the paint off of my bed. It was a metal bed and dug my nails on every post and just ruined it. Why did you do that? I don't know. I was just mad. An awful spanking. What is your name? Friday. Your name is what? Friday. Don't you have any other name? Heidi hmm. Murphy. Where do you live? It's Ireland. Do you know what year it is? 1806. Bernstein had done it. 
He had discovered Virginia Ty's past self. She was named Bridie Murphy, born in Ireland in 1798, died in 1864, and then resurrected in 1952 and caught on tape like a ghost. That tape is incredible to listen to, but not as incredible as what happened next. So I kind of just don't even get from the start, like, 1950s businessman yeah. and a cult. Like, I don't even see how those two things go together. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what I was really curious about, because it's this, well, I'll get to what happens. Okay. But this is who Maury is. Ever since he was a kid, Maury Bernstein had led a charmed life. His family ran a successful business selling industrial equipment, flipping scrap metal in Pueblo, a steel town. Bernstein knew one day he'd take over the family business. He was a straight-A student, star athlete. People said he looked like Frank Sinatra. He was so good at yo-yos that he got a job at the local department store showing them off on the sales floor. I guess if you saw Maury doing something, you wanted to do it too. Bernstein graduated from Wharton in 1941, and he headed back to Colorado to help run the family business. He got married to a woman named Hazel Higgins, a made-to-order wife, a made-to-order life. Until one night, Bernstein went to a party with a man who said he was a hypnotist. The man asked if anyone wanted to try it, and as Bernstein later wrote, a tall, attractive blonde girl spoke up and offered to be his subject. So the first scientifically relevant detail in this investigation into the unknown is that the first time Bernstein witnesses hypnotism, it involves an attractive blonde lady. That the women are attractive in some Doris Day way is not incidental to this story. Bernstein's journey began that night with that blonde woman. The hypnotist put her so deep in a trance that her fiancé could do anything and she wouldn't flinch. He made loud noises, tickled her, put mustard on her face. It's pretty creepy, but the sexual politics here are not really subtext so much as like bold-faced headline text. And honestly, you could make a diorama of pseudoscience or even just psychology through the ages, and it'd be this same scene of men experimenting on women over and over again. This was what first got Bernstein curious about hypnosis, the control. It also raised for him, he said, a whole train of questions. He later wrote, If this thing is true, if this is a fact, then why is it not more widely used? If suggestion is so powerful in this state, then is this not a powerful weapon for good? If the human mind can be so directed, so molded, so impressed, then why does not every doctor understand the fundamentals of hypnosis? What is the reason that science does not show more interest? But science had expressed a lot of interest for a very long time. So before we get back to Bernstein and his discovery of reincarnation, let's take a brief tour through the past lives of hypnotism. Beginning specifically in Austria in the 18th century with a man named Franz Mesmer. Mesmer was a physician who believed that there was a mystical, invisible fluid in all living things that was magnetized by the planets and the stars. If the fluid got blocked up, you got sick. And I mean, this wasn't all that different from a lot of other cutting-edge science. The late 18th century was a time when lots of invisible laws were getting discovered. The conservation of mass, the existence of oxygen, the power of electricity. Ideas like Mesmer's fluid had been around for centuries. But 
he had invented a new therapy that could get the fluids flowing again. He'd bring people over to his drawing rooms. He'd wear purple robes and move his hands or a magnetized iron rod over their bodies. He'd send them into trances to cure them. This is where the term mesmerized comes from. And mesmerism took off all across Europe as a sort of combo party trick and miracle cure. It got really popular during the very decades that women were first fighting for the right to vote. And then it had a very long afterlife. You have you kind of like Mesmer to Freud to B.F. Skinner of just men who are like, it really is bugging me that women are gaining some power yeah. outside the household and the family. So I wonder if I could just put them to sleep and then everything will be about like their sexuality and I'll just make suggestions to them. Over the next century, all sorts of eminent doctors started using trance states to treat hysteria in women, a made-up therapy for a made-up condition. Eventually, a fluid-free version of mesmerism got somewhat legitimized under a new name, hypnotism. Freud used it on his patients. Hypnosis is one of the foundations of psychoanalysis. Maury Bernstein, he was really just another disciple of Franz Mesmer. A couple of centuries after Mesmer conducted his first experiments, Bernstein started practicing on his wife, Hazel, and claimed to have cured her of her headaches. He said he'd help people with all sorts of things, migraines, insomnia, stuttering, hysterical paralysis. But it didn't stop with hypnosis. Before long, he started getting into stranger things, things mainstream science hadn't yet proven, like extrasensory perception, past lives. In a way, he grew frustrated with science. Back on the porch in Vermont, Jill and I were batting around a different set of mysteries. What lies behind the appeal of all this stuff about the human mind? ESP or clairvoyance or auras or who knows what else? Do you ever refer to this stuff as Yaya? No. So I had a roommate in graduate school who was pretty into this stuff. She was in her PhD program in history. There were various, like, slightly occulty things. I mean, I had a lot of roommates when I was younger who were into, like, primal scream therapy. Or, <laughs> like, just whatnot. Like, I had a roommate who was a Wiccan. Or just, just like, I'm so not that person. But I like those people. Like, I, I, I like the challenge that they present, and I also just like their individualism. Anyway, I had this wonderful roommate, and her girlfriend always called it her yaya. And that everyone has, at some level, a yaya. Like, just like, it's like just like a thing that you do... That makes no real sense and just reveals that there is no order in your mind. Like, and there is also no order in the universe. Like, like just like, it's okay because we all have a yaya, but some people have too many of them. Anyway, I like that Maury Bernstein was a guy who went from yo-yos to yayas. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a lot of yayas. He did have a lot of yayas. Most of them were harmless, but not all. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. 
What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel car. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Thanks to Maury Bernstein, I'm now forever going to think of the 1950s as the age, not of the Barbie doll or the yo-yo, but the age of the yaya. Why so much yaya? I think partly because all sorts of World War II technology was making its way in the 1950s into modern life. Atomic energy, microwaves, mainframe computers, things whose workings were invisible. They seemed like miracles. 
and that made it seem as if anything was possible. Knowledge depends on observation, but all those innovations, with their invisible workings, must have made people feel a little doubtful. We think of the 1950s as a super buttoned-up time, but Maury Bernstein and his yayas kind of shows the lie. Here's this put-together businessman who learns about hypnosis and then basically begins practicing the occult. And he wasn't the only one. There were other seekers out there too. Some of them were even scientists at serious universities. Back then, it wasn't entirely weird to be interested in what Bernstein was interested in. In some circles, it was cutting edge. By 1952, in North Carolina, a psychologist named Dr. J.B. Ryan was making his own investigations into the unknown. Ryan headed up the Duke Parapsychology Laboratory, and he'd been doing this research for a long time, since before the Second World War. Bernstein was a big fan. He'd first heard about J.B. Ryan's lab in the 1930s, around when Ryan was part of conducting experiments in telepathy using the radio. What is telepathy? Does it perhaps play a part in personal and business success? How may its forces be controlled? These are some of the questions the Zenith Foundation seeks to explain. Here's how it worked. Ryan had a deck of special cards, each with a different symbol on the back. Three wavy lines, a star, a square. He'd hold up a card and ask subjects whether they knew what symbol was hidden on it. He figured he could calculate the probability that someone would randomly guess the shape. But... If someone guessed correctly, more often than probability predicted, Ryan thought they must have special powers. And some people really seemed like they did. He began to wonder just how many. He tested his students, kids in his neighborhood. But to find out how widespread telepathy truly was, you'd have to test a lot of people at once. That's where the radio came in. If you wish to test for extrasensory perception and telepathy in your own family circle, the Duke University ESP cards, identical with those used in the amazing test by Dr. J.B. Ryan, are now available at stores everywhere. The head of the radio company, it was called Zenith, saw an opportunity. People could use versions of Ryan's cards to test themselves at home, and NBC would run a version of his test on the air. A supposedly telepathic person in the radio studio would look at a card and try to communicate to the radio audience what was on it, but silently, using only telepathy. People would write into the show with their answers, and the company tallied them up. If you think about it, radio already is just a bunch of invisible waves flying through the air to tell you things in the first place. So why not telepathy via radio? See if the thought in their mind comes through space to you. And write down your impressions in consecutive order as quickly as you get them. Five and Dime stores sold out of the ESP cards. And many, many more people, not just scientists, were beginning to think for themselves about all the weird possibilities the mind might hold. I mean, the other thing that's weird about the 20th century version of this weird possibilities of the mind is mass communications allows these practitioners or parapsychologists to kind of go to the people with their evidence Mm. in a way that's different. Yeah, right. And it's a thing that scientists haven't dealt with yet, and enough of them are kind of cautiously open to the idea that maybe there is such a thing as ESP and brain control that they don't write it off. Some of them do, but not everyone. Right, like where you might have like the 
the itinerant quack who goes from village to village in the 18th or the 19th century. It is still kind of the royal society that's going to decide whether or not that's yeah. legit. But in the 20th century, J.B. Ryan can have new frontiers of the mind stuff and he can go on the radio and somehow the people get to decide like whether yeah. this stuff is legit. Ryan was showing how you make a case for the existence of the supernatural to the public, and the public was listening. After those radio experiments, Ryan began to get a lot of publicity, like this article in Life magazine. By some, Dr. Ryan has been compared to Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, Darwin, Freud, and other pioneers. By others, he is regarded as a misguided crackpot and either a deliberate or an unconscious fraud. That article was actually pretty positive about Ryan, but it also ran with this gem of an editor's note. Life senators did not commit themselves to acceptance of his point of view, nor do they presume to act as jury on the matter of whether or not the existence of ESP is a proven fact. Today, we probably have a better sense of where the line falls between kooky and legit. Or do we? Why is it called, like, when does parapsychology become a thing, or when is it called that? Or when is it, when is it like, institutional, and when does it get jettisoned from institutions? Like, we do not have a department of parapsychology at Harvard University. But Harvard did have William James, the father of American psychology, at least until his death in 1910. And he had some pretty out-there beliefs. I think William James has a major influence, obviously, in all of American psychology, but especially at the turn of the century— you know, when William James dies, he asks Henry James to stay in Cambridge for six weeks because William's going to try and communicate from the great beyond, mm-hmm. which I love just because that was one of the last things that he did was take a scientific approach to what was not even a philosophical question so much as a religious or spiritual one. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's like a strong strain of there wouldn't be a need for parapsychology in the early 1900s because... It's only just split off from philosophy. All psychology was para. (laughs) All psychology was para. It's very hard to prove definitively that something's not real, especially when science kept expanding the range of things you could believe in. So a lot of scientists kept their minds at least tentatively open to things we now think of as kooky. J.B. Ryan's mind was more open than most. People used to write to the lab at Duke about strange happenings in their lives. And he took them seriously. Here's a letter from 1949. We have in our congregation a family who are being disturbed by poltergeist phenomena. The phenomena is present only in the boy's presence. I had him in my home. Chairs moved with him. One threw him out. His bed shook whenever he was in it. Words appeared on the boy's body and he has visions of the devil and goes into a trance and speaks in strange language. Believe it or not, that letter is about the boy, an actual kid, who inspired the horror movie The Exorcist. Anyway, back to would-be parapsychologist Maury Bernstein. From his home in Pueblo, Bernstein wrote letters to Ryan and sent him reports on the hundreds of experiments he'd run. In 1952, Ryan invited Bernstein and his wife to visit the parapsychology lab and stay for a week. For Bernstein, this really was like meeting Copernicus or Galileo. But to a lot of actual scientists, there wasn't much daylight between a J.B. Ryan and a Maury Bernstein. A lot of Ryan's fellow scientists did not approve, including one of the most famous psychologists of the 20th century, B.F. Skinner. 
Skinner is the behaviorist who, among other things, liked putting rats in complicated cages. He didn't have time for Ryan's pseudoscience. Also, he figured out that, under the right conditions, you could see through the mass-produced ESP cards. They were printed on super-thin cardstock. Skinner, in front of his students, guessed 100 out of 100 cards correctly. He tore Ryan apart in reviews, and he also wrote him privately to damn his work. This is only another example of the kind of thing which is responsible for the failure of many of us to take your work seriously. I say that in all friendliness. Skinner and his fellow behaviorists were reacting to the messiness of theories like Ryan's or Freud's. They thought there was only one way you could know scientifically what was going on inside another person's mind. That was to observe their behavior. A lot of behaviorists studied animals and then applied those lessons to humans. Their experiments were hugely influential, but they ran on principles that seemed to ignore the very things that distinguish humans from rats. Most people want to believe in something more than what they can see with their own eyes. Maury Bernstein certainly did. He wrote, Now at last, there is scientific evidence that men are something more than bodies, that they have minds with freedom from physical law. Freedom from the physical. That's why, back in Pueblo, Bernstein decided to run a different set of experiments to find out what happens to us after we die. Your name is what? Friday. Just months after Bernstein left Ryan's lab, Virginia Ty sat for that first fateful hypnosis session, an experiment to explore whether we live once or over and over again. Do you know what year it is? 1806. Bernstein pushed and probed, and eventually, out of a 29-year-old American's mouth came a 19th-century Irish woman. What are you studying? How to be a lady. What are some Irish words? Afraid. What does that mean? Oh, it's a, a little cup that you drink out of, and you wish on it very, very Irish, you know. From these bits and pieces, Bernstein tried to discern the very fabric of the universe. You remember the day you died? Mm-hmm. It was on a Sunday. You remember it? Yes, Brian was to church. And it upset him terribly. I was so excited when I found out that Bernstein had recorded his hypnosis sessions. But then... Listening to the tapes felt invasive, voyeuristic. Bernstein thought of himself as communing with the dead. But the more you listen, the creepier it sounds. Can you tell us what happened after your death? How, what was it like? Did you like where you were? Yes. Was it better than your life on Earth? No. It wasn't? No, just full enough. That primal scene. Woman on couch, man leaning over her. Mesmer, Freud, Skinner, Bernstein. The sexual politics of the psychological laboratory. All these men experimenting on all these women. Like, there's this, um... I remember when Harvard brought over the German experimental psychologist Hugo Munsterberg Mm -hmm. to found its experimental psychological laboratory because William James was all... I don't do that kind of thing. He would do all of his experiments on women. 
Gertrude Stein was at Radcliffe then. Do you know this? <laughs> and she writes this thing. She she was like I think doing like a senior thesis or something. She's like, yeah, but he just likes to tie up women. It is literally infantilizing. What do you say when you want a drink of water? Wow. Wow. Like, other than Stein, aren't there... Like, do we have to wait until Betty Friedan before someone is like, all right, guys, <laughs> the jig is up. Like, maybe that's what Bridie Murphy is. Yeah. We decided we should try to flip the script. Jill read up on how to hypnotize people, or at least she claimed that she read up on it, but I don't really think she did. I honestly was not wild about getting hypnotized, but I figured I'd go along with it. Turnabout is fair play. So, one buggy summer night, Jill came out to the cabin holding a candle in this, like, 18th century candle holder, which I guess she just has lying around the house, Benjamin Franklin style. And she tried to put me under. And now I want you to begin as you continue breathing slowly and deliberately, looking at the candle flame a single candle in front of you. And I want to ask you now, I want to ask you now to fall asleep at the count of three. Three, two, one. Getting eaten alive. I know, getting eaten alive too. Terrible. All right, we gave it our best shot. It was really good. It's just like there was a mosquito on my forehead and then there was one on my They're vicious. They're vicious. Vermont midsummer. Lots of mosquitoes. Our hypnosis session was a total bust. But Maury Bernstein's search for Bridie Murphy took a lot longer than ours to peter out. Virginia Ty sat for six sessions and then stopped. She wanted to get on with her life, her future life, not her past. But Bernstein wanted to make a name for himself. He got written up in a Denver magazine. Then he signed a book deal. The Search for Bridie Murphy was published in January 1956. The evening before it came out, Bernstein and his wife went for a walk. They headed downtown. They stopped in the cold outside a bookstore and peered through the window at a display of Bernstein's book all set up for the next day. But even a published parapsychologist couldn't have known what that book would lead to. All the love of Bridie Murphy lives in my heart all the time. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 
As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Do you believe in reincarnation? That you have lived in the days of your In 1956, when the search for Bridie Murphy hit bookstores, people went crazy. Life magazine said the country was in a hypnotizzy. The book was serialized in newspapers across the country, then translated into 30 languages in 34 other countries. It became the number one bestseller in America. All told, it sold 6 million copies. In Houston, a bartender started making a reincarnation cocktail. I will now read the recipe. Please write into the show if you can figure out how this in any way relates to reincarnation. A jigger of vodka, half a jigger of maraschino liqueur, shaken with lemon juice and crushed ice, and topped with a cupful of flaming rum. 
Paramount Pictures bought the Bridie Murphy movie rights. And then there were the songs. Was it on the banks of the Nile? Or was it in old Tripoli? Put me in a trance for a while. Bridie Murphy was everywhere, but Virginia Ty wanted to disappear. She asked not to be publicly identified in Bernstein's book or the press. She tried to hide behind a pseudonym. But Bernstein was loving it. He wouldn't do radio and TV interviews because he felt he couldn't control them. But that didn't stop him from talking endlessly at parties and to newspaper reporters about his great discovery. He'd say stuff like, We may have opened a hidden door for just a second, and without fully understanding what we have seen, we've had an exciting glimpse of immortality. He worked the book, film, and audio angles. He released a record, an LP, of that first hypnotism session. The search for Bridie Murphy is the true story of a skeptical young businessman who learned, much to a surprise, that the wonders of hypnosis are very real indeed. People listened. Sometimes seriously, sometimes in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way. They threw come-as-you-were parties. They wrote to Bernstein to tell him about who they'd been centuries before. A hypnotist offered to find people's past lives for 25 bucks a pop. He discovered one local woman had been a horse in 1800, which maybe she should have asked for her money back. People even used the Bridie Murphy story to sell cars. Here's how to end your search for Bridie Murphy. This is real text from a real ad that ran in a real newspaper. If you're looking for something out of this world, see Bill Murphy's selection of used cars at prices that won't put you in a trance. These cars are not a reincarnation, they're real cars at real savings. But then, America's reincarnation craze quickly shaded into nightmare. In Oklahoma, a 19-year-old boy shot himself and left a note under the windshield wiper of his truck saying he wanted to find out if he'd be reincarnated like Bridie Murphy. Christians began to rail against Bernstein's book as sacrilegious. Ty's family was furious at her for the same reasons. She couldn't keep the press away. Newsmen published her real name, but some people just sent letters made out to Bridie Murphy, Pueblo, Colorado. Reporters clamored for her to speak. Her marriage began to fall apart. She went into hiding, hoping it would die down. None of this made Paramount feel particularly good about the film they were making. Flame means sleep. Flame sleep. Paramount began tweaking the Bridie Murphy story. They changed it so the plot would make hypnotism look dangerous enough that people wouldn't try it at home. And they wrote in a scene where a Catholic priest and a Protestant minister reject the idea of reincarnation. I have to say, the result is one of the worst movies I have ever seen. And I've seen the other film about Bridie Murphy that came out in 1956, The She-Creature. Under his spell, she was both herself and another being, the She-Creature seeking life sustenance from the stolen heartbeats of others. Legend has it that Hollywood's iconic creepy guy character actor, Peter Lorre, fired his agent for signing him on to that project. 
Anyway, the Bridie Murphy phenomenon was completely off the rails. Back in Vermont, in true Last Archive fashion, all these Bridie Murphy movies got us wondering about a different film from 1956. I really am a sucker for the idea that science fiction tends to really reflect what's really going on deeply in a society. But Invasion of the Body Snatchers is kind of a Bridie Murphy story, right? Like it, it, It's the anxiety that we might not be who we think we are. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. As the unimaginable becomes real, the impossible becomes true. Okay, I am hijacking this episode here for a minute because I love this movie. At first glance, everything looked the same. It wasn't. Something evil had taken possession of the town. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a movie about a small town in California where one by one, people are being replaced by heartless aliens who look just like them, but aren't them, because they're aliens. It's like Bridie Murphy showing up in Virginia Ty's body. The hero, Miles, is a medical doctor, but in the end it's a psychiatrist, a guy like B.F. Skinner, the behaviorist, who tries to convince Miles to give in. There's no pain. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories, and you're reborn into an untroubled world. Where everyone's the same? Exactly. People take Invasion of the Body Snatchers as an allegory for two completely different things. Either it's about the perils of communism, or else it's about the Red Scare, where Americans accused each other of being secret communists. But really, those are just two versions of the same anxiety, that fear that people can be remolded like rats in cages, sapped of their individuality, turned into mindless conformists. Wake up, sheeple! Except, in 1956, people didn't say wake up, sheeple. They said, don't get brainwashed. Brainwashing was a new term then. It had come out of the Korean War. People thought of brainwashing as a kind of hypnosis that could take American soldiers and turn them into communist robots. Let us review once again the weaknesses in the American character. That's an American documentary film made after the Korean War about how communists in China and North Korea had found it so easy to brainwash Americans. You, as instructors of American prisoners, can exploit these weaknesses in order to control them. So, as I was trying to put all the pieces together, it began to look to me like this. Men get brainwashed as an act of war. Women get hypnotized as a parlor trick. But at the end of the day... Everybody in the 1950s is doubting that they have a constant, stable self. Your name is what? Friday. It's the same set of questions the psychologists were asking about people and people were asking about Bridie Murphy. Who are you? Who were you? Or maybe in Bridie Murphy's case, who was the real imposter? Because ever since Maury Bernstein first brought the story of Bridie Murphy to the press, people had asked... Was Bridie Murphy a fake? Eventually, newspaper editors sent reporters to Ireland to fact-check. Turns out, the kind of iron bed she said she scratched the paint off in 1802... It was a metal bed. 
There weren't beds like that in Ireland for almost 50 more years. It went on like that. Detail after detail struck down. Until the final blow. A reporter discovered that Virginia Ty had grown up across the street from an Irish woman named Bridie Murphy Corkle. And Ty had even had a crush on her son. The search for Bridie Murphy started to come to an end. Maury Bernstein wouldn't let it go. After the articles debunking Bridie Murphy came out, he began warring with everyone who doubted him. He said those debunking reports got it wrong and ignored all the strange knowledge Ty had about 19th century Ireland. He met with a lawyer and asked Ty if she'd give interviews. But she refused. She'd fallen out with her family, her home life was in shambles. And look, I don't think Ty was lying about Bridie Murphy, or about being hypnotized. I think she was just semi-conscious and stitching together a story at Bernstein's suggestion, combining stray details from the past. But, then again, things do have strange afterlives. What is your name, please? My name is Virginia Ty. My name is Virginia Ty. My name is Virginia Ty. Panel, these three ladies all claim to be Virginia Ty. We start the cross-examination with Kitty Carlisle. That's a TV game show popular in the 60s called To Tell the Truth. Very last archive. In each episode, three people all claim to be the same person, but only one of them really is. The panelists have to guess who. Number three, was the trance that you went into... Um, was it was it induced on purpose to find out something like this, or did it just happen? The first uh, trance was accidental. Accidental. And, and number two, how did you happen to fall into this accidental first trance? Uh, you mean other than hypnosis? Just, yes. Yes, well, I was, uh, it's a social contact, a man that we knew personally. Ah, and it just happened? Just happened. And uh, number one, was that, the, was that the time then that you began It's to, not to, much fun if you can't see them, so I'll just tell you. That's the real Virginia tie. Number two. How extraordinary. Number two, did you remember anything when you came out of the trance? No, nothing. Well, how do you know they weren't just putting you on? When you woke <laughs> up, they said, oh, what you said. I'd, li- I'd like to think they did. Ah, that's it. <laughs> this tape, 10 years after Bernstein's book came out, is the only non-hypnotized audio that I could find of Ty. Will the real Virginia Ty please stand up? You hardly ever get to hear Ty speak for herself in this story, just Bernstein speaking Bridie Murphy through her. So I had high hopes for the game show. But after the real Virginia Ty stood up, finally stood up in front of a mic, her own self, the host just ended the segment. I guess that's how the game is played. A fascinating story. We thank you for bringing it to us and hope you enjoyed it too. Good night and God bless you. Ty and her husband got divorced not long after that game show aired. She moved on to a new life, but she never lived the past one down. She died from cancer in 1995. I don't know what happened to her after death. Maury Bernstein became a millionaire trading stocks, but he became more and more withdrawn, angrier and more controlling. His wife divorced him. He moved into a small apartment and never really left it. He stopped cutting his hair, left stains on his shirt. People called him the Howard Hughes of Pueblo. He liked to say that people didn't die. They just went to Bridieville. But he did die in 1999. His brother said it was malnutrition.
But so the thing that I'm still struggling with, trying to understand this story and the whole of the 20th century, which I am <laughs> still <laughs> baffled by, is what happened to a tolerance for just uncertainty? Like, what about the kind of mystical unknowability of why we do things? Jill and I batted the meaning of this story around for a long time out in that cabin. Like, in one of those late-night conversations in the hallway of your dorm room. Except in the middle of a global pandemic, waiting for the world to end. I'm not sure that the search for Brady Murphy produces a lot of doubt. Yeah, I mean, it's like a, it's an artifact of our growing intolerance for uncertainty. Yeah. And I'm going to nail this one down. Yeah, because you don't want to be uncertain about what happens to you after you die. Yeah. Who you really are. I don't think Bridie Murphy proved anything about who we really are, or about what happens to us after we die. Americans in the 1950s never did settle those questions. Because those questions can't ever be settled all the way. They're like a window you can't quite shut, and the draft keeps getting in. But I guess the thing about all of these stories, Bridie Murphy, brainwashing body snatchers, even Freudianism, just looking ahead to the 1960s, it doesn't take very far to get to conspiracy theories from here. We'll find out more on the next thrilling episode of The Last Archive from The Cabin in the Woods. This episode was written by Ben Nadef Haffrey. It's produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadef Haffrey. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Martine Gonzalez is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Our research assistants are Olivia Oldham and Oliver Riskin Cuts. Our foolproof players are Yoshi Amao, Raymond Blankenhorn, Matthias Bossi, Dan Epstein, Ethan Hershenfeld, Becca A. Lewis, Andrew Perella, Robert Ricotta, and Nick Saxton. The Lost Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. At Pushkin, thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, Maya Koenig, and Daniela Lacan. Special thanks to Simon Leake, Vicky Merrick, and the Pueblo Historical Society. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore. Bridie. Speak to me, Bridie. Speak. My eyes are full of the love for you. And this song in my heart must be heard. Speak, Bridie. Yes, my love. Bridie. Bridie, you hear? Yes, my love. What do you see, Bridie? Will we be together soon? And for always? Always, my love. Always. 
got a feeling that I'm moving on From this old earth I'm soon gone And she'll be there right by my side When I cross the great divide For the love of bride Lives in my heart all the time Lives in my heart all the time The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 